Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, Quatermass and the Pit. In the year 5 million BC, something came from Mars. What's that? Some, like, locusts, I guess? Inago. It's Inago in Japan. I've eaten them. Yeah. Yeah. Have you eaten Inago? Um, not like prepared properly. I've eaten it for like a prank. Oh, okay. No, uh, I, I, if you don't know, this is a, most of my students say they haven't had it, but it's a, a cooked locust with soy on them. We went to a restaurant, like a countryside restaurant once and, and the, the nice old couple like served it to us as like service, like the free thing. And my daughter was two at the time. We're just sitting there like rah, rah, eating it. It was like a hammer film. Yeah, that does sound pretty hammer film. Like today's, it, it actually didn't taste bad. It's just like one, it's a bug, and two, you get like the legs in your teeth. And that, that's when I ate one. bugs, that's what I had. They were in my weak mouth for like a week. Okay. So. Um, this is Matt. This is Luke. Welcome to the Sci Fi Sanctuary. It is a hammer film today. You're going to say it because I keep mispronouncing it. I'm going to wait your mess and the pit. There we go. Thank you. I, I want to, I, th- I don't want money, man. I want quarters. Actually, I don't want money because I don't have much money. But um, today, this this was actually a guest suggestion from returning guest who um, has written a bunch of books on the occult, lots of interesting, you know, like 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 mind trips of books. Uh, Ken Ami, hello, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. And unlike the previous movie we reviewed, um, <clears throat> this one I thoroughly enjoyed. So <laughs> there we go. Hurrah! Yeah. I enjoyed it, except I was eating curry when the um, the Martian locust aliens were disintegrating, and and that wasn't like an awesome match. Right. No, no, I was eating chicken. I was eating chicken with like some kind of like um, sauce on it, and just yeah, it seemed somewhat similar. I think I I finished eating my dinner before anything gross happened. That's unfortunate timing. Yeah. So Ken, I guess our first question for you is: um, Have you ever eaten a bug? We have. <laughs> Purposefully, no. Not per. Okay. What were you? Yours was prank. Mine was to be polite. Yours was bicycling. I've eaten bugs that yes. way. Okay. Oh, I've eaten many that way. Yeah. <laughs> or my yes. eyes eat those. I, I don't like the eye bug. <laughs> <laughs> um, as far as this movie, I, I've, I've seen it around for years. I remember, you know, around year 2000 when I was looking at interesting DVDs. I go by like the box art. Like, that looks cool. I want to see it. I don't see this one and never, never quite pick it up. I'm not sure why. I guess, I don't know. Maybe it seemed a little dry and I, I wanted psychedelic. Though this does have some psychedelics, so uh, you don't miss out on that. But uh, uh, Ken, where did this one come into your life? Because, uh, again, this is your suggestion today. Well, first of all, something uh, that you mentioned already, which is I thought as well that it's quarter mass, quarter mass. <laughs> 
And I wrote an entire review of this movie referring to quarter mass and then at the end i was just quoting some some stuff and, and i thought they what they just misspelled this it's not and then i looked it up like, it is not quarter mass because i thought it was like a britishism you know oh, quater mass don't you know but it is it's quater so that was that blew me away and by the way um in the uk it's quarter mass Quater mass in the pit, and the U.S. has called five million years to Earth. That's because those Yankees can't handle was the word quater mass. <laughs> I was going to suggest Matt just call it that to keep himself out of trouble. Yeah, and I'm, I might do that all night. Who knows? But <laughs> the way I don't know exactly how I ran into it, but as I've mentioned before on the with you guys, is I'm writing a series of books reviewing movies with UFO and alien themes, and so I've kind of been looking everywhere I could think of any year, decade, I don't really care. And somehow I ran across it. And of course, uh, in the UK, Quater Mass has been a TV series, I mean, from the old black and white days. And then it's been a series of movies, some that were multi-part. And um, this one really struck a chord with me. And, and oh, it has every theme that comes up time and time and time again in alien and ufo movies regardless of what year they're from and i'll put it this way the uh, technocratic unholy trinity is high tech evolution and the occult those three elements are absolutely unavoidable whenever i'm looking into transhumanism aka futurism or posthumanism and in alien and ufo movies it's like uh, essentially inevitable and this movie uh, has all those three features in it as well so i was fascinated but i do find myself making the same points over and over again as i write movie reviews about this stuff just over and over it's, it's incredible yeah i guess my first impression actually this is a very uh, i guess it's not quite as straight up horror as the completely quintessential hammer film but it, it follows that hammer film thing where it has like fantastic atmospherics it's a little slow but it seems smart and then the last 20 minutes it just goes like nuts so <laughs> which is uh, i guess pretty much the normal hammer film trajectory so this is a, a, a very nice representation of of that studio I'm, I'm probably coming a little more from the uh the caught film perspective where you know this one is yeah yeah hammer films is a certain standard you know my my dad grew up constantly telling me about how um, traumatized he was by Christopher Lee's horror of Dracula, you know, and, and it was hard to find. It took us like five years to find it on VHS in, uh, in the late eighties. So. <laughs> well, growing up in the UK, I was very aware of the TV serials of Quaid the Mass because mm -hmm. they would often get mentioned in like Doctor Who magazine and stuff. But I don't think I even knew that the Hammer films existed or maybe I just conflated the two in my head. So when you said we were watching Quaid the Mass in the Pit, I was expecting the black and white 1950 right. TV one. Yeah, there, there is. This story is in a 1950s. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. Oh, like the three Quaid Mass TV shows then became the three Quaid Mass right. movies. But yeah, so I was kind of pleasantly surprised when it was color and like a little more fast-paced and exciting than I was expecting. Because <laughs> I, I knew vaguely the plot, and I'd it always been meaning to watch it, because digging up aliens that have been there for a long time is one of my favorite tropes. Like the, the Thing or a lot of the Lovecraft stuff, that's right up my alley. Yes, it's basically the ancient aliens. Yeah. 
like the 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 original ancient alien theme is all over a lot of the movies this this is a different bit of media but it kept flashing through my mind well two things flashed through my mind if you looked at my notes i was like there are weird similarities with ghostbusters here i mean i know this is like way earlier but i'm just like certain parts of the plot really like made me keep thinking of ghostbusters i guess it's it's like the hodgepodge together science that the authorities don't believe in yeah 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 that we got <laughs> our water pet character and all that yeah in the form of the defense minister um and the other one is uh, it was an episode of the simpsons a little past their prime where they dig up the like angel thing oh i remember that one yeah yeah and uh it, it turns out to be a hoax and at the time it's like ha 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 that's funny it was a hoax but now you're like well how much of this stuff like has maybe it's not like this fantastic thing that you know like in this case you know alien martian locusts that tried to reprogram genetics you know maybe that's a too wide a picture but there could be a certain thing to when you find like a giant bone in the ground you know i'm using the archaeological sense of the word well i, I always <laughs> think like maybe most of our legends of dragons just come from people finding dinosaur bones yeah yeah possibly or or oh. experiencing them in you know like trances right mm -hmm. <laughs> yes well you know i've written quite a few books on issues of nephilim and quote-unquote giants and that's definitely a theme I've had to touch upon time and time again, which is when an ancient person found a, a huge bone, they weren't exactly uh, qualified to, to determine that it was human versus dinosaur or pachyderm or whale. And, and um, there's a researcher, I believe she's a sociologist, who gave a really interesting example of, let's say an ancient person found the skeleton of a pachyderm, like a mammoth. That's exactly the one I thought you were going to go for, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly your Greek cyclops. Right, exactly. So what would they do? Uh, they would lay it out on the ground. So it's a two-dimensional surface, right? Now, that means you don't have to bother with all this stuff like in modern-day museums where you have to actually reconstruct the bones so that they're uh, functional. You're just laying them flat. So that simplifies everything. Um, and then you would have the skull with a hole in the center that's for a trunk. But if you didn't know that, you would think that's an eye hole. And there you go. You have a giant cyclops. So that is something to be very, very uh, aware of. And uh, it, it, it explains a lot of things. And I have tracked down in my books some of the old, we always hear about old newspaper accounts of giants being found. And the ones I've been able to find that any follow-up was done on, uh, they do turn out to be pachyderm or whale or dinosaur or something like that. Mm. Yeah, I know in the States when they find these things, a lot of them are just thrown into the Smithsonian warehouse to be uh, forgotten about Raiders of the Lost Ark style. Uh, then you'll find things in, you know, like little local museums that are relatively unverifiable, but those museums are, you know, hella fun to visit. So, <laughs> right. um, like a, more like a sideshow. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I especially love the mystery spots where they're like, oh, the laws of physics break down here. They just built the room at like a weird angle. And then on the, there's one, I haven't been to the one in California. That's the one that supposedly is like the, the really cool one. I went to one in Kentucky that was like just totally an entertaining sham. So <laughs> at the end, did it turn out that all the dinosaur bones were just like marketing to get you to want chicken wings or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I want chicken wings. Yeah. I always want chicken wings. Found <laughs> them bugs. Mm. Um, <laughs> before we get too far uh shall we go ahead and, and plow into the plot yeah I, I made luke write it like on the fly because like no no I, it, this one has to be in like a british accent i, I can't do it okay i'm gonna go for like my strongest accent i can do that okay this is the colonel breen accent 
Engineers on the London Underground accidentally uncover some fossilized skulls. Archaeologists are called in and they accidentally uncover a metal object, possibly an unexploded bomb. The army are called in and they accidentally discover a huge mysterious rocket. Colonel Bream is called in and accidentally discovers a mysterious alien spacecraft. Professor Quatermass tags along and accidentally discovers a five million year old Martian plot to genetically engineer life on Earth and brainwash us into using psychic powers to perform ethnic cleansing. Quater Mass and the archaeologist put a stop to that right quick with a big metal stake through the heart of the alien machine. punch you now <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, yeah, that's, that's the punchable accent isn't it yeah that's the accent that you throw our tea in the water for <laughs> so basically some work is being done in the London underground basically uh, what we would call a subway stop a tube and they, they find a uh, a skull and so the scientists are called in and of course you have the typical debate about well let's keep, just get the stuff out of here so we can finish our work but they keep finding more things and then they end up finding uh, objects some kind of uh, thing that they first interpret to be a world war era bomb and tell us the name of that bomb <laughs> At least the, the nickname of the bomb they suspected it was, they called it a Satan. Oh, oh yeah. right. Sorry. I, yeah, I, I did catch that early on, but yeah. V2. Yeah, which is, it was a real slang for that kind of bomb back in the day. But it's also very in keeping with the plot of the movie. Yeah. Uh, because also you'll recall that that particular underground station yeah, is, is hub right and then it is specifically noted that it used to be hob it is now hobb but it used to be hob which were we, which we are told was once a sort of nickname for the devil yeah, i was thinking okay. i guess that's where like hobgoblin comes from. Uh, okay i was like is that a thing or yeah i think it is a thing okay <laughs> you know how quaint and stupid british words sound sometimes <laughs> Stop. but so instantly we have at this stage of the movie very early on you just something okay well that's kind of odd uh but we do find that there ends up being this correlation between paranormal phenomena that's been happening in that area for decades if not longer, no, centuries, actually, centuries. Yeah, because they're finding, like, and, what, medieval texts and stuff. <laughs> yes. So that, that was part of the uh, interesting uh, ancient aliens aspect, is that you have this concept of this craft that, for some odd reason, you know, those aliens, boy, they always forget the little things, like filling up with gasoline or petrol, you know. 
And um, so they're stuck on Earth and and for centuries that it's like a hub of paranormal activity. So that's one interesting aspect of this movie is that it, it seeks to explain paranormal activity as having something, we don't know what yet, something to do with whatever this thing is. So uh, this is this is definitely a tangible. What's the most paranormal place you folks have been to? Oh, been to a place where it just felt quite paranormal. I'll I'll start because that's a question you got to think about too. One's in Japan, which is um, forest Kuruma. It was it was it it, the forest. It's north of Kyoto. You oh. take a train about thirty minutes. You hike up a mountain. It's there's a tree that's split, and that's uh, there's a Shinto legend that's the source of creation. Okay, so that's kind of cool. And then there's a temple, and um, you can go down, and it's a catacomb, and it was just like the creepiest place I've ever been. So. That that's more of you know that's probably a little more of a mind trip. Uh, the other one where I just felt it kind of permeating in the walls is um, uh, the, the the notorious ghost town in the states of Charleston, South Carolina. You, you feel weirdness kind of permeating around there. Again, they have ghost tours and stuff. There's 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 a psychosomatic element there too. But just yeah, this is a place that feels kind of creepy. So yeah, I've got two as well. Um, I went, uh, me and my girlfriend at the time were looking for an apartment in the UK. And we went and looked at one that was in a converted old mental asylum. <laughs> and it just, like, they were just like weird, unnecessary locks here and doors there. And just, we just walked into it and she's like, Luke, we're not living here. This place is haunted. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, I kind of feel it. Um, you have to pay uh, the first month's rent, the last month's rent, utilities, and the phantasmagoria comes free. <laughs> yeah. And then the one that always gets me, because I like to go just hiking up on random mountains around here in Japan, sometimes I find myself coming down once it's dark, and it's just like a little, very small, insular Japanese village, and it's just like these really old buildings, a little old lady staring at me as I walk past, there's mysterious looking shrine i start getting horror movie vibes whenever i'm up there oh i make, I make that my normal holiday time walk man <laughs> yeah but you, you it's the it's familiar it's fine in the day no, it's when not, i it's find not, myself in one of them night. at night and i've never nice. been there before yeah but, but it's familiar surroundings right. i do these walks all the time so yeah, yeah uh ken you got a creepy place I suppose one place is a local cemetery where there's basically two halves. There's the new half that is nice and upkept, grass and everything is really nice and done up. And then there's the old half that goes maybe back to the 1800s, which is just it's just dirt and uh, old, really interesting looking tombstones. But it's uh, I've been there at night and it's kind of an interesting feel. Otherwise, I would say, I think maybe um, when I was in Israel, and not only really because here in America, I mean, you might go to a place that's 300 years old, perhaps. Uh, in Israel, you're walking around places that are millennia old, millennia. And uh, just to think about the, the, the number of things that have happened there, the number of people that have been through there. Um, so, uh, or being up in Masada, we climb Masada where just to not be captured by Romans, a bunch of Jews committed suicide. You know, that, that was a pretty interesting place, especially because we woke up before sunrise and we climbed up to the top um, to watch the sunrise from there. So, I mean, I, I would say it's not like I had any kind of experiences, but maybe those two places stand out. 
when you were telling about the first one, I was thinking like, ah, oh, yeah, that's America. Because in the UK, the new side would go back to the 1700s and 1800s. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We feel that question not too long about ago about Japan, where we do have these old places, but they get rebuilt pretty regularly because mm. they're all built out of wood. And, that, and they just do that, you know? Um, you'll often see in Japan where they're just taking down a building. Like, Why are you taking that down? That looks like classic, you know, that, but that's just, that's what they do. There's also, there's a lot of superstition about um, continuing to live in a place where someone's died. Or, or where a family lived in Japan, yeah. people do not want to move into a house that has been previously lived in. They'll demolish that house. They'll build oh. a new one. So. You know, it's interesting is in the housing complex where I live, we I watched my house be uh, built up from when it was dirt mm. to a frame to it was a house. The complex was that new. And my neighbor across the street, when his house wasn't even done being built yet, there was a small fire in it. No big deal. Okay. But they're Filipino. And he said, oh, my family, they got this superstitious thing about fire. And I was like, no, no, you should feel good about this. I mean, do you know what statistically the chances are that anything like that will ever happen again to you? You're set. <laughs> this is good news. <laughs> it's pre-disastered, as oh. they said in uh, the world, according to Gart movie. It's pre-disastered, right? You, you got it over with. You're done. <laughs> and my heart was stopped for a second because I was like, is this where the story ends? Or do they all move in and it burns down again? So I'm glad that was the ending there, yeah. yeah. It's a happy ending. So we'll get a little, it's still a tangent, but I guess we'll get a little more underground. I was reading not long ago, um, just in the Philippines, where they do have areas of the cities where it's like, they, they, again, bring up catacombs and people living there. So it's like a necropolis, but people also live there and have shops and stuff. And it was a pretty wild article to look at. So mm -hmm. just, you know, kind of fascinating. <laughs> you seen that? Nope. No, it, it, yeah. Yeah, if anyone's, it, it was just a really interesting, you know, I don't remember where I read it, unfortunately, but I was like, wow, people live like that, and that's, that's mm. crazy. Well, uh, quite a few of the sci-fis we've watched seem to think we're all going to live underground eventually. Yeah. Which well, I'm not a big fan of. Here they're not <laughs> underground. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like an outdoor mausoleum, but since the city's relatively crowded, people are also inhabiting those areas, right. and it's become like this, this whole culture, but um. Uh, anyway, my, my question in the first place is all just to get to the point that um, the atmospherics of this cinematic place in Quatermass is <laughs> is it's really cool. I just a very cool, creepy sci-fi vibe, you know. Mm. I really like the way they tied it into they made their bugs so that in silhouette it looks like the devil. Yeah. <laughs> and he can say like, oh, doesn't that look like a gargoyle? Doesn't that look like every devil you've ever seen? Then we get that nice. And you get the payoff right at the end when we see the the big smoky one, yeah. <laughs> I guess we're designing already, but uh, we should give a, a few shout outs to a few of the actors since we tend to do that. Um, the one, of course, that I notice most is Barbara Shelley because she is a regular of these Hammer films. Mm -hmm. I think she's in the aforementioned horror of Dracula. And um, you don't happen to the wiki out, do you? No, because I turned my phone off so it wouldn't. Oh, right. Us. That makes sense. Anyway, um, I, I know the lead of this. Here we go. The lead of the film is actually not um, Andrew Keel, who's playing uh, Quatermass, but is the uh, the other doctor, uh, Dr. Roney, James Donald, who um, I, I just noticed because I had seen this film way back when that he plays uh, Theo Van Gogh in Lust for Life, which is kind of an interesting one. Seems like he was in Bridge on the River Kwai, Great Escape. So I guess that's why he got top billing. <laughs> 
And Dr. Ro- Ro- Dr. Rody at the end when that locust uh, phantasm manifests over Hobbes, he he says it's Satan. You know, he identifies it as the devil. So even there, it's not just that we're thinking, well, that's kind of like this shape with horns, the antennas kind of look like horns. It's like they're, they're making that correlation for us. It's oh, all through the film, yeah. No, it, yeah. Said, um, it said when they were getting the rating certification, they were like, oh, it's, that's too satanic. We, we want, we're going to give us like an X rating just because of the wow. level of Satanism. They were like, or, or no, no, no. When they were going over their script, they're like, if you make this film, it's going to get a high rating because it's so right. explicitly satanic in its imagery. So <laughs> times have changed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now you go. Um, it was like animated DreamWorks movies, which probably got Satan in them. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was actually impressed by, um, I forgot her name. Was it Barbara? Uh, yeah, the actress and the character she, is Barbara. She wasn't playing like a, <laughs> typical scream queen damsel for most of the film. Yes. Like, there, there wasn't really a scene where she's just like, oh, I need to save it at any point. Yeah, watching a, a role like that where the, the female or actor has like agency in the film, it's like, wow, that's that's pretty, you know, wild for the 60s. Yeah, and I like the moment I mean, where it didn't work on Quaid and Massey had to put it on her. Yeah. She was the one who was connected and stuff. Like right, that. she is a styled assistant to Dr. Roney, so she is in the sciences to some degree. And then, yeah, it does turn out that she's able to do some things that are not. And then I would say uh, that she essentially turns into what I would turn the Scarlet Woman, which, I don't know, it's some kind of deep occultic thing tying to what the Book of Revelation calls the Horror of Babylon. Supposedly some kind of entity woman that you can summon for occult purposes. And, and especially at the, there's one point at the end where she is walking on the street, like basically uh, in a hypnotic state, as many of them are uh, by the end of the movie. And she is literally wearing all red. And then when, um, again, we're kind of jumping all over the timeline of this movie, but when Quater Mass 2 falls for this uh, hypnotic state, uh, these paranormal abilities that interacting with these, even though they're dead, <laughs> these locusts, uh, even Quatermass succumbs to it, and so there's a scene where it's basically alchemical, where his masculinity and her femininity kind of meet, and they're able to pull each other out of this thing. Uh, in fact, he knocks her out with a punch at one point, uh, you might recall. <laughs> yeah, that's a Captain Kirk move. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, nothing else, uh, this, this is definitely like a very sharp movie. It, it, it kind of, I guess it does need, you watched it two nights ago? Last night in the end. Oh, you did, okay. Yeah. I, I feel like it does need a little bit of time to stew before it really takes form. It needs to simmer a bit, you know? Right. This when You watch, you're like, okay, that happened. And you're like, oh, well, hey, this all fit together really nice, you know? <laughs> yeah, it does a really good job of being, like, technically a sci-fi, but just dealing in occult imagery and tropes in a way that it still has that like horror witchcrafty vibe. Yeah, well, see, in a way that is the Quatermass character because there's a, a bifurcation between the government and the military personnel who are just strictly secular, essentially, in a manner of speaking. They're all just say, this is a military weapon. This is a bomb. This was done by an army. There's nothing to see here, folks. And Quatermass, who is a scientist and a serious one, but he's willing to follow the evidence where it leads, 
even when it's leading him to very odd places where he's basically being denied the continuation of funding for his projects and everything else that he has to suffer because he's saying, no, this is what it is. This is what it is. These are actually alien entities. Well, and that's a truer depiction of what science should be than what you see in a lot of films, because science is a set of, you know, methodology to find the truth. It shouldn't be dogmatic. Whereas often science is depicted as like, oh, no, no, it couldn't be anything fantastical. I believe in science. Right. It's like crossing the line from skeptical to cynical. Mm. Right. It should be skeptical. But it, when you cross it, OK, so skeptic would say, I won't believe until. Where right. a cynic would say, I won't believe, period. Whatever you show me, yeah. <laughs> so that's the, um, that's the interesting part about the Quatermass character. Is he's kind of going in between both of those, those worlds and just uh, trying to uh, expose what's really happening there, even to his own peril. I was reading that the, the uh, guy who played him was, said he was actually quite unhappy making this film. Oh. He was convinced that the uh, writer wanted a different actor. Um, and, and the writer was like, no, I didn't want one at all. No, maybe it's the director wanted a different actor. And it's like, if I know, I didn't even know he's unhappy at the time, I'd try to make him happier. But maybe that, I wonder if that actually kind of serves the performance because there's kind of a weird curmudgeonness, you know, <laughs> mixed with, you know, optimism and a fervor for the truth. Yeah. <laughs> well, because the, the Quatermass of the black and whites was a different actor than the Quatermass of the, these movies. Mm. Yeah, even the first two, I believe, have a different actor. So he, yes. so he only played Quatermass in this one. Um, and I think no. in the 90s he did a radio version where it was a news. Well, Wait. there's also a three-part movie that he starred in. A okay. three-part Quatermass movie. Another interesting one correlated to the occult where um, there's alien goings on at uh, places that are like a Stonehenge type area. Okay. But anyhow, uh, in the notes, someone wrote, he's like the esoteric Columba with more, more facial hair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he kind of stumbles into the scene. And... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> one more thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one more thing. <laughs> That's what I think. And then the, he would make a fantastic guest for Coast to Coast AM. Yes, 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 of course he would. <laughs> you know that one? No. Okay, that's, 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 that's an American one, but it's, it's, it's basically, it was a live radio, is a live radio program since the 90s, where basically anyone, I mean, they'll have guests that are into this sort of esoteric or, uh, you know, science stuff or pseudoscience, if you want to use that term, but uh, anyone can just call in and kind of like bring in their wild ideas. Oh, okay. Which, yeah. Sounds and like then the, the, the notes also say Quatermass is just a crazy old man now for reals. Oh. And incidentally, in one of the, the in the three part movie, at one point he's made to realize, oh, there's something he should have realized, but he didn't catch it. And he says, oh, God, I'm too old. My brain's drying. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say next time I uh, mess up in a class or something. In all the scenes yeah. where it's you know, the classic scene where he's telling them what's going on, the army doesn't want to believe it. He does sound insane in this film, though. <laughs> like, I can see why they don't believe him. Because, because he comes to the, these conclusions so fast. <laughs> but see, what's interesting, too, is the military explanation is, is also not just a denial. Yeah. But uh, the Breen, Breen actually makes a good case for his side. So he's been making a very irrational case. Until like the very 
very end. Oh yeah, but he yeah. Once telekinesis enters the picture, it's time to consider yeah. the weird. <laughs> well, so if you remember, if you remember how those bugs look, yeah. <laughs> Well, if you remember at the very end, Breen ends up literally on his knees before the craft as if in worship and he's completely transfixed and he essentially just melts into a puddle. Yeah, I definitely remember that. <laughs> he doesn't actually melt. He just like burns, right? He's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. that's it. And, and that's also very sort of uh, Phoenix-like alchemical where he's he's come to recognize the truth and he has this moment of enlightenment, and that's it. He can just let go of his former personality and self because that's all over with. He's he's experiencing a brand new reality, and he's completely given over to it. Actually, I'm thinking, you know, last time we did, we were talking about the warden and clockwork, right? And then Breen is kind of the same character, but played sure, in a yeah. much more in an understated way, which, you know, makes him seem more real, too. So. <laughs> Pick that up and put it down properly. Yeah, yeah, because from Green Clockwork could, Orange. I know, I know. Green could easily start doing that, but he didn't. Yeah. And it makes for again, <laughs> this is a pretty smart movie, um, despite having some cheesy edges, which is appealing. I mean, honestly, if it was just fully smart and didn't have the weird cheesy effects and stuff, um, it wouldn't be as as lovable. <laughs> So maybe let's pick it up where they're starting to starting to dig out this thing, which is identified and told to the public to be a bomb, like a Satan. <laughs> uh, but then they're starting to find uh, peculiar things about it, such as they, they can't even scratch it. They can't um, burn into it. They can't seem to open it. They can't seem to do anything uh, until they go. Um, we'll see. It's kind of hard to explain. It's almost like the Knight Rider car. <laughs> It's it's just this object. I would imagine it's maybe uh, 15 feet long, and they, they, there's a, um, a portion where you can go inside of it, but it's just a hollow, and they can't figure out, okay, what is this about? But there's a wall, so they're trying to break into it. Finally, they get a super high-tech drill, and they're drilling into it, and the re reverberations are such that they're, like, losing their minds. It's just so overwhelming. And so they stop, they come out, and then they come back in, they find, oh, we did drill a hole into it. But then they realize, actually, we didn't, because the hole's bigger than the drill bit, and it seems like it's from the inside, and then that wall starts to crumble. And then you have this image, really fascinating image, multicolored, of what, you know, look like insects. They're referred to as locusts, but they're like in these crystalline, if you could imagine maybe a beehive, uh, but made of crystal, right? Yeah, it's a real kaleidoscope. Um, that was fantastic design. And yeah. we shouldn't forget the um, sort of the tree of life symbology on that bulkhead. That was pretty wild. Okay, so yeah, that was um, Quatermass claims that it is a Kabbalistic symbol and that it's a pentagram. Uh, it's definitely not a pentagram. Yeah, I, I <laughs> caught him saying that. And I was like, I must have misheard. Oh, I yeah. misheard because yeah. I just said tree of life. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, there was 
just one of those movie movie things somewhere between the script and the design someone botched it okay but whatever the well, point maybe is i'm trying to avoid that x rating for satanic imagery <laughs> perhaps but the point is that they find they can't even scratch the thing but there's this symbol scratched on it and quater mass identifies it as an occult symbol so then, okay, you're wondering, what is an occult symbol doing on this thing that ends up being an alien craft? So there you go. And so once that the, the opening is made, they realize, okay, these locust things, which, by the way, they're insectoid locusts, but they're like three feet long. So they're quite large. You'd, you'd have quite the meal in Japan with one of those, you know, <laughs> your whole family. Uh, and, but then the crystalline structure starts falling apart, and they're picking up these uh, insectoid corpses to study them, but they're starting to melt. So everything's decaying because of the rush of oxygen it just starts uh, oxidizing everything instantly and everything starts falling apart. So they're trying to learn as much as they can as soon as possible. I was interested that the you mentioned the spaceship was hollow. So I, I think the implication was this is just like the capsule that would have had a separate propulsion system but then they get the idea that the yeah. structure of the ship itself is... what looks like a solid object to us is actually some incredibly powerful or magical technology we can't understand because even though the ship is just a solid piece of metal it still has this psychic energy and projects these images and stuff yeah because they make it inside of the whatever the <laughs> the cavernous opening the what you would think was a cockpit and quatermass says doesn't seem to lead through anywhere and that there's no external propulsion unit i don't see how they can they were controlled unless unless the missile itself did some of the thinking mm. so this is like extremely early artificial intelligence right here and then they say uh this substance this substance isn't inert far from it because you would wonder how do insects build all this stuff, and it's almost like a it's almost like they didn't. It's almost like they had artificial intelligence that was able to do this. Of course, did they build the artificial intelligence? And that just gets into the whole mythology of where these locusts came from. Yeah, they only really give us a taste of their society. Yeah, but it does seem like a pretty interesting alien race. I would have liked to see more. I don't think seeing more would have worked for this film, but if they if as I understand, I think with Quatermass, each story is completely different, aliens and plot and stuff. But if they'd done it so, in such a way where the sequel was these guys again, I would have liked to have heard more. So one way that they see more is because just coming into contact with this craft uh, taps into whatever it is, human potential to have paranormal, paranormal uh, uh, capabilities. And so with the usage of a helmet that was created by Dr. Uh, Roney, they're able to visualize, literally put somebody's uh, thoughts uh, through a monitor and they can watch the thoughts, right? And so they're able to capture some of the ancient history of this local uh, locust race. And mostly what we see is a time during their development when there was basically a, uh, a cleansing, like a genocide, basically. And that, that's essentially what we see and how some of them ended up here on Earth doing that which they did. It made me recall, um, and, and can you mind uh, seeing this one, but last year we reviewed uh, Color Out of Space, which had this sudden, mm -hmm. sudden like, 
burst of the alien homeworld imagery and that that one being a little more you know cg and things of course but sort of made me think of that just getting late in the movie suddenly getting this like direct blast of the uh of, of the vision of the alien planet or whatever i really liked it when we were seeing just glimpses like through the little screen on their device and stuff mm -hmm. once they gave us like a good minute of close-up footage it did, it, you know, look a bit like just playing with your action figures. <laughs> yeah, it, it was uh, pretty cheesy, but, um, yeah, no, it's, you know, it's, it's I guess they sort of got away with it because you're watching it on a monitor that's black and white and really grainy. So it was purposefully done so it would look yeah, like you would kind of expect it to. But what they're saying is that the memories show a race purge, a cleansing of Martian hives and that uh, they were killing and being killed. I think we may have witnessed ritual slaughter to preserve a fixed society uh, to rid it of mutations. So this fascinating that they refer to it as a ritual, but that it also pertained to that some of the locusts had experienced mutations and they just wanted to get rid of them. Mm. Yeah. Because then once and this is jumping ahead a bit, once it gets, it starts happening to the humans as well, it seems they're hunting down anyone who doesn't have the psychic connection. Like anyone right. who's mutated away from what the Martians designed. So they say that's the way they lived and it's the way they intended their substitutes on Earth to live. That this stored memory of killing should be coupled with Another power that thing in the pit seems to possess, the power to redirect human energy into a force beyond control. So that's what was happening to the humans when they were uh, exposed to this phenomena for long enough. So like we mentioned before, uh, the town above had experienced paranormal effects for centuries. But it seems like the closer you get to the actual object, the more of an effect that it would have on you so that uh, people came under its control and they would be basically like hypnotized and all of a sudden they had these powers like telekinesis where they're uh, when they identified a human being that didn't have these powers because they were not mutants or they were they were mutant i don't i couldn't figure out which is which but yeah. they would like cause uh, rocks to crash on them they're literally murdering people who are different than they just like happened back on Mars, but they're doing it mentally, right? They're causing all these events. One thing I remember they mentioned, so every time some kind of digging got close to the craft was when the paranormal stuff happened. So in medieval times, they dug a well and started seeing the devil. Mm. And then when they first built the underground station, they were seeing them. And then this time they expanded the underground station and saw it again. So it's definitely when they get close to it, when they disturb it is when this stuff starts happening. I guess that's where the horror comes in because uh, Forbidden Planet, you know, Water Pigeon's character, Dr. Morpheus or whatever, you know, he, he kind of understands the thing's powerful and takes it on anyway. Right. Whereas this one just like, again, it's just proximity and not, not intentional proximity, you know, and it starts to affect you and sort of let the, uh, the id go nuts. So because the, the horrible thing about it, too, is that it's not like these be these locusts were alive and were doing these things to you. They're they're long dead. So yeah, they, there's just the human right. So um, looking at their horned antenna, uh, 
Poitramas states the horned demons in the old prints. It's like a gargoyle. I mean, in fact, haven't you seen it carved in walls in a dozen countries? Isn't it in the depths of all our minds, a race memory? So here, much like, um, much like in other movies, the, the real life, real world paranormal of theology, uh, like demonology, is explained away as ancient cultural or race memories of having interacted with aliens. Yep. And then uh, Dr. Roney is leaping through an ancient book and says, got it. Uh, look at this cave painting of 3,000 years ago, a man in a ritual mask. I wonder where he dreamed um, that. Uh, I wonder where he dreamed up the idea of that. And then he continues, I think these are old friends we haven't seen for a time. And Quatermass says, weight instructor, point to low gravity environment, um, a thin atmosphere, perhaps a world that is dead now, but a few million years ago could have been teeming with life. I wonder, a name that's been nearly worn out before anything turned up to claim it. What this, um, was this really a Martian? And, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out how the civilization could have um, come about in Mars and then how they came to Earth. And on Earth, they found the basic primates and, and very much in keeping with, um, well, in the 60s and 70s, there were already these kinds of ideas around, especially in occult circles that then combined with the ufology circles, as they always do, like the Morning of the Magicians, uh, which is then picked up by like Eric von Doniken and his ancient astronaut theory. And so all these things were really becoming popular back in those days. Another strain, yeah, we keep talking about the mutants. I guess the 60s is also when the, you know, the X-Men comic book was getting off the ground, mm -hmm. just as an interesting one was telekinesis and people being mutated by, by birth, not by an alien craft in that case, and hated and feared and basically getting to the point. I, I know... Um, much later, Grant Morrison really got into the idea of writing X-Men of the idea that the next step in evolution, you know, basically just goes to, to kill the, uh, the lesser step. In this case, the new alien mutated people are trying to off anyone else. And Grant Morrison, by his own admission, he bridges that gap again and again and again between the occult and aliens and everything that comes after there, like the human mutants, right? Because Grant Morrison himself claims that he's possessed. And I mean, that's a story he tells about himself. Yeah, I think <laughs> um, it's that he was a sigil that has come to fruition or something. <laughs> something well, it's because he went to um, tantric rituals in India and then he tells this whole story about how these entities basically possessed him and so that's what he's been doing ever since and now he's encouraging his um, you know prepubescent audience to engage in uh, the occult rituals of Aleister Crowley and all this kind of stuff where you think your kids are going to uh, Comic-Con to look at comic books and they're hearing lectures from Grant Morrison about uh, engaging in occult rituals basically is what it comes down to he's actually, he's really done that and and if you remember for uh when one of his comic books wasn't selling very well <coughs> he uh encouraged his uh readership to engage in a what he called a 
wankathon. Um, which okay, I mean, yeah, it's it's a funny thing, but if when it comes to the kind of ritual magic he's doing, it's a very real and serious thing because they believe that with that release of energy, then it puts this um, petition essentially out into the universe, and then the energy returns back to fulfill that intention and whatever. You know, it's basically. The, the typical uh, ritual magic concept of uh, will uh, having uh, reality conform to one's will. That's basically what it comes down to. And he was encouraging his readership to do that for him and his sales. <laughs> I guess the nice Faustian bargain there. You're facing the universe as your rival, right? I need my own willpower to, to do it. Where I guess the other other thing which also you can use ritual for um is you know using the universe as your mirror <laughs> which is i think maybe in star wars light side dark side right all of that it's all pretty uh archetypal in the end <laughs> i just did a show on star wars uh the other day and the person that hosts the program got in touch with me because I wrote an article called Everything I Know About the Occult I've Learned from Star Wars. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's full of all of that kind of stuff. But uh, back to our tale. You know, I did want to ask, in the notes, someone wrote All-Seeing Eye Poster, and I didn't I didn't know if you meant you found that within the movie or a poster of the movie. No, um, it was on the it was one of the wall posters on the wall in the underground, I believe. Hmm, I'll have to take a second I, I look at say, that. Uh, I'm, I'm going by memory, but I want to say it was like a white poster with kind of a like orange, red, yellowish color with this deny. And I was like, oh, that's that's right behind the people talking. That's interesting. <laughs> Very good. I'll have to check that out. And I mean, I, that could be, I mean, you could take that as like they're watching you or you could take that as, you know, your own all-seeing eye. You know, I don't know what the Opening to the around. reality. I'm not right. saying you're saying like, oh, it's some sort of like horrible thing. It's like, oh, someone put that there. So yeah, I, I don't know what their thoughts were. But, a deliberate choice. I didn't catch it either. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I, my thought of that, I, you know, I, I again, I would like to think of the third eye and the all-seeing eye is simply the eye to see reality with. But yeah, there is the very... um nefarious definition to that as well that comes up so <laughs> and then in the notes also <laughs> it says underground eight men is a good name for your ironic punk a uh, pop punk and bnd uh, okay band okay so underground <laughs> eight men there you go underground now, underground so the reason why that's uh, in the notes is because what they start finding also around the craft are okay oh he's looking uh, for the all-seeing eye okay yeah, ah okay are, yeah, with are, the, that, keep going it's okay no the, look the, for the it and then you ways, there if you find it okay so they start finding skulls and skeletons of what they call you know they they're uh, your stereotypical ape men but they're they seem to be different their skulls are different and they fig they theorize and figure out that the locusts were somehow manipulating the genetics of uh, early um, human-like, ape-like uh, life forms on Earth. And so that that's what was going on there. And so... Right that's, from the first time we see the ape-men, they do have a very large skull. Right. Almost so, more like a typical, like, gray skull. That's what I was looking at. 
Okay, it's almost like a flower. I wonder if I can share this with you. Give us a sec. So the poster on the right there. Almost like a subconscious thing, because yeah, now that we're looking at it for a long time, sure, it's a it's a flower, but at the same time, it's just um, I guess it's because it's the media here too, and mm. yeah, just for some reason, it, it stuck out in my mind. Yeah, I can see it <laughs> as an eye, at like a glance, definitely. Speaking of media, I did find it interesting where there's a scene where Dr. Roney is speaking to the press and encouraging them essentially to tell his side of the story as to why they should be allowed to remain down there and, and stop the construction because there was more work for the scientists to do. And that's all well and good, but it did still strike me that it is media manipulation. Yeah. He was literally telling them what stories to write. Yeah, I, I, I mean, again, that's um, people like embedded reporters, like in conflicts or wars. They're, right. you know, it's like, it's sort of like, if you're going to be embedded, you've got to play our game a little bit. We're not going to let let you go out there and be like a maverick, man, you know? <laughs> the, um, I was hearing recently about how John McCain was, um, his campaigns were always very successful because he would make a real effort to befriend all the reporters who reported on his campaign. And he was really warm to them and friendly mm -hmm. to them. And once, you know, once you're mates with the guy, you're not going to write a story about how he's terrible and you shouldn't vote for him. That's, that's the positive <laughs> so side like, of media that's manipulation. Say, media manipulation doesn't have to be incredibly, you know, dark and the, the CIA threatening to blow up your family or whatever, but it's still manipulation and it still is pretty shifty what they're up to yeah i mean right. like with us we're, we're okay this is our sci-fi sanctuary here we generally choose films that we're going to find something we enjoy we're, uh, we, we did one month where we um took films that we absolutely hated and and found out <laughs> us liking a few things about some of them uh ready player one accepting but <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like like that's our manipulation we, we kind of want to talk positive about the stuff yeah i don't really want to waste my time with something that i think's trash <laughs> It's very so then, difficult to give anything unbiased. Like, even just giving pure stats, choosing which stats to share is a bias. Yeah. <laughs> like, there is no unbiased media. It doesn't exist. I mean, <laughs> again, if you do a scientific, you know, observation and you want to see it as a particle or a wave, you've just biased the uh, science. <laughs> which I guess is why it's so, still a pretty wild experiment. <laughs> Now, another very in-your-face point made by the movie is when essentially it seems like it's all over with. They're just going to they're just gonna bury everything back up and keep working on the underground and everything's going to be fine. Not. Um, and then there's a worker down there who went down to get his tools late at night when no one else is around except someone guarding the, the front door. And this wind that starts blowing out from the underground. Um, but we find out it's, it's not exactly normal wind because as he's running down the street 
freaking out, it starts following him, right? So this wind is almost like an entity, and it chases him, and he ends up running right through a graveyard, and he ends up being found by a priest, and by then he's like, uh, he's a mess, right? He's just uh, out of his mind, essentially, and when Quatermass tracks him down, and what's her name, Miss Judy, is it? Um, yeah, I think that was it, Barbara Judy. Yeah, um, they're told by the priest. Um, I felt sure he'd been in contact with spiritual evil, and the driller. That's what that that, that was the guy that had drilled into the craft originally or attempted to. He states, I had to run to get away. They were coming, them, them. I remember it. Um, I remember it started when I could only see them. Um, I'm sorry. I remember it started, and then I could only see them. Like you found down there, the eyes, the horns, they were alive, hopping like very fast, hundreds and hundreds, leaping, jumping in and out them big places in and out of them oh huge right up into the sky and so he was having these visions of the locust uh, coming after him so he it, what that's what's interesting in that he ends up in a, in a church or i guess we call it solace and of course the priest is interpreting it uh, theologically and of course you can't say he was wrong for doing so, <laughs> given the, that the movie has these correlations between aliens and what we would call the occult. The um, the end of that scene is one of the scenes which really established Quatermass's character, because the priest says, "Like, oh, I suppose you've got some rational explanation," and Quatermass says, "Well, my explanation is that it is ancient evil that came after him," <laughs> and that's yeah, what we were what we were saying earlier about how he's. He's skeptical, but not cynical. Yeah, you, you know, he's not going to shit on this source of the evil, but um, the fact that it's a problem is <laughs> pretty yeah. clear. You know, let's not get into to the the details, except let's deal with the problem, maybe. <laughs> oh, it's uh, Miss Judd, by the way, Miss Judd. She ah. says, "You said these faculties may be in all of us," which is really like a very typical claim that's made by occultists or New Agers that. Uh, these paranormal abilities are naturally in human beings and you just have to tap into them or develop them. And then she says, uh, poltergeist type outbreaks, second sight. They've been recorded the world over through the ages, myths, magic, even witchcraft, perhaps. They all came from there. And she says, so as far as anybody is, we're the Martians now. Mm. Do we firmly establish that they are from Mars? Well, a lot of the the lore that we find out, Quatermass just comes to these conclusions really quickly, and everyone sticks with it. I'm just, you know, <laughs> I think more and more well, the ufologists and stuff kind of like some people are like, oh, more like an interdimensional thing, like they're they're from two feet above, you know, that sort of idea. And I'm sitting here wondering if this ancient evil might actually be of Earth in a slightly different phase. So now sometimes when I write movie reviews, I literally go step by step. So at times I'm kind of speculating and then something's either confirmed or not. So at one point I wrote, Quartermass says, I wonder, a name that's been nearly worn out before anything turned up to claim it, uh, was this really a Martian? And so I wrote, why Martian specifically? Perhaps to hint at Wells, 
and or be, uh, you know H.G. Wells and the War of the Worlds, uh, and or because Mars had long been viewed as close enough in terms of possibility, uh, possible life supporting Earth-like planets. Well, I think um, the movie. I have to remember this film was made in the '60s, and in early sci-fi, Martian was just the word you used for alien, right? Right. Uh, I mean, nowadays, like saying little green man. Yeah. Nowadays, of course, you would say it came from a different solar system further away. Whereas back in the day, you would usually just say Mars. The shorthand. For but then also Mars is um, the god of war, right? And the red planet. And later it gets into this idea that they deliberately put this urge to kill into us. Right. So that could be another deliberate illusion. And as far as locusts, it's a very, um, for me, it hints of uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 9, where the abyss, the bottomless pit is opened up, and these beings, who I, I interpret as fallen angels, but they're symbolically described variously. But one thing they're said to be is like locusts, right? So quite a number of them, and they're destructive. Uh, and so, because why locusts specifically? Why not any kind of other insect, or, or why an insect anyway within this movie? On the other, the other end of the Bible, we got the uh, plague of locusts, right? Again, specifically locust with uh, Moses and its <laughs> the the various plagues. So, and then right when um, <laughs> eventually, what happens is, as we I mentioned before, um, a huge phantasm of one of these locusts um but looking almost like a typical gray alien but with the little little tiny antenna horns and dr roney saying it's the devil the horned devil and uh quatermass now trying to get him out of uh being cap captivated vices don't look at it right and then they figure um roney says mass into energy and Quatermass says, the focus of all that's happening, the cause, oh, God, God. So they're kind of realizing that um, this thing is actually becoming to be formed due to the energy and the energy being put into it, such as like when you stare at it and you're giving you this energy to it, that's, that's why it's manifesting. So Ro Roni figures mass into energy, the fundamental law, it must be. What uh, now? This was interesting. What's the devil's? What's the devil's enemy? It was iron. I'm not sure where he gets that, but that's what he said. It was iron. <laughs> it might make sense if it were possible to project a massive metal into it, and so essentially they cause it to collapse by Roni um, climbing atop a, a metal structure. What is it? A crane. And he comes into contact with it, and you know, horrible things happen to him. Poor, poor guy. Yeah, I think in the serial, he just throws a, a metal chain in the pit, but they want mm. to be more cinematic. I know fairies were weak to iron, was a thing. Iron and folklore. That's what. Oh, uh, apparently, it comes from an old story of the devil having a horseshoe nailed into his hoof. Oh. And yeah, so iron is said to repel the devil and supernatural creatures. Well, I guess he's well-read then. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it was better known in, you know, 60s Britain than it is to us. Mm. Yeah. I mean, 
It was, if nothing else, then, because we had already been told that Hob was a nickname for the devil. So they were already very early on in this movie hinting at uh, the local folklore. It makes me wonder at the end, because they were manifesting this devil, if the point all along was for, like, to use human psychic energy to bring themselves back some way. If maybe if they'd let it continue, then the Martians would have just used us to be reborn. Mm. I guess it, they came back as a weird phantasm, at least. So who, yeah. give it another 20 minutes, who knows what it does. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> it, I, I think I alluded already, but just to shout out to those last 20 minutes, those are some of the most fantastic practical effects, like, ever, I think. Yeah, yeah, the stuff where the buildings are being smashed and stuff look great. And just all those things, like, waving through the air at various different... I mean, I guess they just have a bunch of people on the floor waving stuff. I thought, yeah, I don't, cool. feel like, don't feel like I ever saw any strings or anything. Yeah, it just looked cool. So I, I definitely appreciated all of that. And, you know, just very cool effects in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And it's pandemonium at that point, because even blocks away, people are being affected. And, uh, in fact, that way... <laughs> I got a kick out of how at one point there's patrons in a bar or a pub. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> and they're seeing um, footage from, from the Hobbs underground. And one of them says three streets away and we're going to see it on the telly. I tell yeah. you, people don't believe nothing nowadays unless they see it on the telly. <laughs> What's happening. I better go check the news. Yeah. It's not real time. I go and see it on the news. Right. Yeah. <laughs> If you recall, there's a point in which the uh, craft, uh, which has been essentially um, navy blue, I would say, all along, and just uh, w one single monochromatic, just one color, uh, it starts to undulate. Yeah, and it's, it's white light, and it has like these white light and, and like a varicose veins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so something, again, it's not the aliens doing it because they're long dead. So what is it? It's apparently the artificial intelligence. We don't, we don't really know exactly, but that's the only thing that would make sense, that it's becoming activated. And it's almost like a, a vicious cycle where the more people that get transfixed by it, the more energy it gets, the more it puts out. Mm. I can't help but think of the, uh, the magical idea of the, the egregore. Or the, the masses, or, you know, just if everyone believes something is true, that thing actually starts to take form. It's kind right, of like, like a, watching at the end of this. Yeah, tulpa yeah. is another term for that. Yeah, tulpa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of you wrote, loud noises. Oh, yeah, I like to write that in my notes regularly. <laughs> I don't know what we're yelling about. Is that yeah. what you had in mind? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, just when, when, the, when my notes movie's getting loud, I tend to write that down. <laughs> I, I, I do these notes uh, late night. It's 1130. I'm having dinner. I sit on the train and usually just uh, spewing words onto the, the or onto the digital paper, I should say. <laughs> yeah, I've quit even reading Matt's notes because they're mostly just madness at this point. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I like that Ken spits them back at me because I usually forget what I wrote. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sometimes I, I'd have his note and I'd just be like, Matt, what does this mean? And Matt doesn't have a clue what it means anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's uh, as an author, uh, the rare occasion that happens, man, that, <laughs> that just bothers me. Um, okay. So one time I, I told my wife, you know, I guess when I'm tired or sleepy, I shouldn't be writing editing notes on my books because I have this note that said Yorn, not like the Icelandic Bjorn. I mean, why? 
O R N. And that was a note I wrote to something. And I have no idea what it means. I just <laughs> no clue whatsoever. So that's just one of those mysteries in life. I think it's the, the mystery of yarn. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the atmospherics in Japan. Uh, did you get this just everyone's super sleepy yesterday? Yeah, it's when the when the weather changes, I always go Okay. Back. You know, I was gonna say that our weather has been changing. We had a hail the other day and, and I do find that I, I seem to feel pretty fatigued when it gets overcast. Especially when it's kind of unexpected. I just had that uncomfortable moment where you, I'm standing, but somehow I took a, I'm giving a listening test and I have like a quick micro nap and I'm like, where am I? And all the students are like staring, like, what are you doing? I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't quite that sleepy, but. No, I just like, I think I, I was like, okay, you read the thing, okay, questions, one, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what's happening? <laughs> so, yeah. You're just getting old, man. Your brain's oh, here. My brain's dry. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? In, uh, in the movie Hangar 18, that comes up again, a um, uh, character says, it's the dry desert air that does it. Does what? Drives up their brain juice so they can't think straight. <laughs> but I found uh, a part from the script when they're discussing the uh, how these events go way back. Okay, so they're reading a report about alarming noises and spectral appearances. September 1763, grievous sounds emanating from the very earth had severely frightened certain fellows employed in the digging of a well that was one like to die. Um, that was one uh, that one is like to die mad. Sorry, guys, I'm dyslexic. And sometimes I try to read out loud. It just doesn't work very well. Uh, Ms. Jude notes, stories, wild rumors, uh, they believed in those days, but she's told, I suppose it's possible for, for ghosts, let's use that word, to be phenomenal and were badly observed and wrongly explained, okay? So then they uh, read another report, one inhabitant of Hobbs Lane does assert that he often spied the apparition of a hideous goblin and one several, and that this place is long notorious for weird happenings. I love that line, long notorious for weird happenings. And then they find uh, a record in the archive of uh, Westminster Abbey. In the winter of the year 1341, the religious of that region did strive against an outbreak of evil at Hobbs uh, Lane. Imps and demons, demons did appear Foul noises sent by the devil did uh, solely afflict the charcoal burners that had lately come there. Interesting, okay? Charcoal burners, obviously talking about spacecraft contextually, right? That's how they would have interpreted that. So it's really interesting that they're pouring over these. Uh, they've been felling trees, big ones. In 1763, a well was being dug. In 1927, the underground station and now... Uh, the extinction, uh, all disturbances at the ground. So that's when they figure out this has been going on for centuries, but no one ever really knew why, what was going on. Yeah, it's just, it depends on whatever you're coming in with, what you're going to observe, if it's uh, that strange. <laughs> I mean, again, people today are going to see UFOs and aliens if this sort of thing happens. And I guess that, that's where this film's kind of interesting. It's very much on the line of where people would be like, it's Satan and it's an alien. Hmm. In the 60s. Yeah, if, if this happened 20 years earlier, everyone's assumption would be, oh, it's Satan, it's the devil. 20 years later, everyone's assumption would be, it's aliens, it's a space thing. This is that 
that one moment in time where both sort of fields of belief would have been commonplace. Right. That's what I was saying is um, the, the words the this movie kind of blurs the line mm. because of that, that discussion, particularly that really short discussion between the priest and Quatermass, where they're coming to this agreement, just using different terms. Yeah. completely tie a bow around things i guess we should just take a moment to um give a quick comparison with this and doctor who <laughs> there's 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 some definitely some wiggle room this one gets a lot more of the occult vibe i think although i guess doctor who still has that yeah doctor who episodes. yeah yeah and and it doctor who is less grounded in science <laughs> way <laughs> less grounded in science so yeah that's kind of interesting i guess it's difficult based on just this is the only quatermass i've seen so far Whereas the impression I get is if you watch all of it, it is a very Doctor Who feel, where it's a different adventure each week with... To the only really recurring thing is that Quatermass is there. Mm. And it also... Um, <clears throat> every now and then in Doctor Who, you'll get the story where, oh, the Doctor didn't really do anything in this one. Everyone else solved it. <laughs> and really, the Quatermass like, identifies that it's aliens pretty early on. But he gets taken in by the psychic thing that's going on, and it's Doctor Rooney who actually solves it. That's why he's top billing. Yeah. Anyway, this is better movie than Doctor Who and the Daleks. I'll give, I'll give that easily. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, let, let me read a quote here about why Colonel Breen was adamant about blaming the Germans. So this is an actual explanation about the actual script and what it's about. Hmm. Um, oh, now, there's a reference to a... Let's see... A post-war writer for whom the war has never gone away. Uh, quote, this is whom you should really be interviewing, he says, indicating a shelf of books by his wife. Sorry, this is the script writer, okay. Mm. The writer and illustrator Judith Kerr, who fled Hitler's Berlin and grew up in a British internment camp for friendly aliens. Her 1971 book, When Hitler Stole a Pink Rabbit, was one of the first popular narratives of life under the Nazis. That, he says, is what Quatermass and the Pit is really about. Well, definitely, I definitely made the connection that here's a film, well, the story would have originally been in the 1950s, and it deals with, you know, mass killings and ethnic cleansing, which obviously was something that had very recently entered the public consciousness in a big way. Um, and I think it was something that people were really struggling to make sense of. So maybe the idea that Martians put it in our brains would help you sleep at night a little better. So that's what's interesting is when you end up watching this fantastic sci-fi tale about uh, aliens and the occult, and then you go maybe a little... A level deeper and what was that all about well it's about uh, genetics it's about racial cleansing it's about occult powers 
And then you end up learning behind it all is really this this concept of um, Nazis dropping bomb of your city, causing devastation that lasts for decades. Uh, and like you said, uh, genocide and, and all these concepts that that a scriptwriter had in their mind and that you would maybe never even guess if it has not, if it had not been revealed, right? That's where the, the, the context is for Kings. <laughs> yeah, well, right at the start, I mean, the first thing they assume is it's a German bomb from the Blitz. Which is a reasonable assumption. Which, yeah, I'm sure they're probably, <laughs> I think there were still a few knocking around London until within my lifetime. There's probably a few knocking around London. <laughs> yeah, they're probably still sitting there now. I, I know. Um, they dropped a hell of a lot of bombs, so there's going to be quite a few that didn't go off. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 where you drop bombs, yeah. <laughs> Okay, now, in the, if you can see the chat, I, I'm putting a name there because that's the one I totally skipped over. I said an author. Oh, the writer, if could, yeah. If you could pronounce that last name. I would, I would guess just Neil, Nigel Neil. Okay, Nigel Neil. I'm assuming it's a silent K. But. <laughs> okay, so Nigel Neil in 1960 wrote the book Quater Mass in the Pit. Oh, wow. Oh, so the book was after... At least the TV one. Well, yeah, um, I don't recall when the I TV, the TV one, one was made. Fifty nine, so they probably did the TV show and then novelized it, most likely. I know that happened a lot with Doctor Who. Yeah. So, so then it was uh, Nigel Neal, who is the post-war writer for whom the war has never gone away, and he's the right. one who said that it, to look at his wife and what she wrote, and that it's that—that's who I was talking about. Okay, but. I'm glad I did that because I just caught that in my review I mentioned Neil without bothering to say who he was. Okay. <laughs> That's why I got stuck on that. So now at least I can go back and edit that. Right. So Nigel Neil, yeah. Um, so we're wrapping up pretty much. Are there any other big concepts we want to hit on this? I think we definitely hit the, the occult button nicely. The occult button and the ancient alien stuff was <laughs> that's, the main thing. I, I think this, you know, a year ago we were trying to do Total Recall, and uh, this is probably what we were trying to do then, so yeah. <laughs> more or less. <laughs> which which Total Recall? We were doing the Schwarz, uh, Schwarzenegger, yeah. You know that you know how people always talk about being red-pilled? Yeah. Is that yeah? Well, that most people think it started with the Matrix, but it's in Total Recall first. Oh yeah, right because he's in, in he's in the delusion. He's offered a blue or a red pill. The right. blue one will take the the blue one will keep you in the delusion. The red one will take you back into your real life. Then they picked up on that for the Matrix. With the yeah, same but the Matrix concept. should have come up with the third option of just shoot the guy in between the eyes. <laughs> <laughs> That's why the Matrix didn't have Schwarzenegger, did it? Yeah, <laughs> very different film. Uh, anyway, um, can you tell everyone about the book you're you're working on? Well, at the moment, um, I think I'm due to publish uh, volume three of the movies reviewing Alien and UFO movies. The, the book reviewing those uh, movies with those themes in it. And I don't even remember what number three has in it. I would have to look because <laughs> I'm kind of just compiling them as I go along. In other words, I've written a ton of movie reviews. And then when I see maybe two movies that would seem to kind of go together, I turn them into one of the volumes because uh, I'm trying to keep each one short. 
Right. And um, yeah, so I'm not technically working on a book right now. I'm just kind of putting together my reviews. So for instance, a lot of the quotes I was reading tonight is from my review. So uh, Quatermass is definitely going into combined with another one that is just, again, typically um, the occult and the alien angle are just just like that. All right. Yeah, I, I actually, I talked to um, Charlie Robinson a few weeks ago. He said he wrote Contact for your book and then realized after he wrote the review that there are no actual aliens in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> And, oh no! It's the aliens' is dad. They called it on South Park. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Because you don't know what the aliens are. They just kind of manifest as um, something they they pull out of your memory, like a fond memory, like the protagonist's father. Right. The alien shows up looking like him. So again, it's one of those things where you don't really get to know what they're like or what they look like, and. And it kind of falls into an infinite regress type of situation because the reason they're able to go and interact with the aliens, and I'm actually not sure why they had to traverse the universe to interact with a delusion <laughs> or, a, <laughs> or an illusion, right? But whatever. Um, and so they're asked, well, how did you build this technology to get us basically through a wormhole? And they're like, well, we didn't do it. It was here long before. Like, oh, thanks for nothing, you know, you, you're, you don't even know, you just, so it's just like this infinite regress, aliens before us did it and before them, and who knows, it's kind of like uh, in this Quatermass in the pit, um, where did the Martian life come from, we don't really know, apparently it just sort of happened, and there was a note that you wrote about panspermia, and uh, of course, there's the, the concept of directed panspermia and undirected panspermia, right? One is purposeful and one is not, so. Just to clarify, directed panspermia is not the Grant Morrison thing. <laughs> right. Well, actually, it is. It's not panspermia. Grant Morrison's was directed, specifically. Goal-oriented. Yeah. <laughs> no, no pan. Okay, there we go. <laughs> I mean, you can use a pan if you don't have a tissue. <laughs> Grant Morrison didn't give you that much advice. He should have. <laughs> Maybe in a lecture. Okay. I should um, have stopped there. <laughs> um, and, and Ken, your, uh, sorry, your website is still uh, truefreethinker.com, correct? Yes, sir. Okay. Sorry, I just didn't want to not say that before. Yeah. Since Appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> um, Luke, tell me where we're at. Uh, you can find this podcast on Twitter at MLSFSPod. Also on Facebook, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, blah, blah, blah. Just search Matt and Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. And if you want to help keep it online and keep us paying for the ProZoom and all of that good stuff, then you go to patreon.com slash podcastio podcastius. And we are putting some early stuff up there now. Um, my other podcast here. I actually, I just throw the raw audio of this before I edit there. So if you do the Patreon, you can get stuff earlier for now. <laughs> and uh, maybe you can hear the awful offensive things that I say that Matt has to cut. <laughs> Okay, Ken, as always, it's been jolly chatting with you, so thanks for spending your evening in the in the sanctuary. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, we will go to work in a minute. So. <laughs> anyway, we're going to drill down the door of this sanctuary and find some decomposing locust aliens, so laters, y'all. All right, thanks so much. <laughs>
Coming soon, Muppets from Space, Prometheus, War of the Worlds, Vermont's Room.